Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being here early tonight. My name is Pat Posey. I'm a saxophonist and uh, administrator and teacher. I'm on the faculty at the USC Thornton School of Music, and I am very excited to be sharing with you some thoughts about the great American composer, performer, and band leader, Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington was born in 1899 in Washington, D.C. He died in 1974 in New York City. For the first 24 years of his life, he lived in Washington, D.C. His mother, Daisy Kennedy Ellington, was born in 1879. She came from a middle-class family. She had completed high school. Her father was a Washington, D.C. policeman, a rare and coveted job for a black man at the time. His mother showered him with love, praise, and encouragement. From his memoirs, he said, I was pampered and pampered and spoiled rotten by all the women in the family. This gave him a feeling of confidence, a feeling of being favored, which he held on to for the rest of his life. He had one younger sister born when he was 16, but his birth certificate said that he was the second child, which may explain the mother's coddling, productive, and doting manner that she may have lost an earlier child. Also, she was perhaps reacting to the worsening situation for black Americans during the time, hoping he would rise above the challenges and be able to make a better life for himself. He adored her, and throughout her life, he was constantly seeking her approval. Her husband, his father, James Edward Ellington, known as J.E., was born in 1879 also in Lincolnton, North Carolina. He came from a very different background. He didn't complete the eighth grade, and like many Southern blacks, migrated north hoping for a better life. He held a number of jobs, including being a driver, being a butler for a wealthy doctor, and working as a caterer, sometimes for high society events, including at the White House. From these events, he would bring home food, find food for his family as kids, and young Edward, who would later uh, recall that he raised his family as though he were a millionaire. The best had to be carefully examined to make sure it was good enough for my mother. Growing up, Duke Ellington and his family lived in 14 different locations in northwest Washington, D.C., which was known as more of an upper-class neighborhood for black members of the community as opposed to the southwest, which was more of a working-class neighborhood. J.E., his father, taught his son good manners that he picked up from all of these catering gigs, including how to choose the proper knife, the proper fork, spoon, how to dress, and how to interact with the people around him. J.E. was regarded by young Duke as a great ballroom dancer, a great wine connoisseur, and a great wit. He always knew exactly what to say to impress women. One of his signature lines was, gee, you make that hat look pretty, which, as Duke got older, he used as a song title in 1968. Um, Duke, from his father, picked up and carried on this kind of flattery, this particular charm that he carried with him through the rest of his life. J.E. and Daisy had very different temperaments. Daisy was moral, stiff-lift, and prim. J.E. was easygoing, fun-loving. Nothing ever really bothered him. Daisy had more education. She came from a higher social class. They attended different churches, but they had a warm, close relationship with each other, with their son, and with the family around. Both of them came from large families, and so even though there were only two children in the household, there were always aunts, uncles, cousins, other family members around for Duke to play with and to entertain. J.E. and Daisy both played the piano. 
J.E. would play opera arias by ear mostly. Daisy would read sheet music. She would play popular songs, rags. And one of Duke's earliest memories was hearing his mother play the rosary so beautiful that he burst out crying. So he learned early on the power of music to reach from one soul to another to touch the human spirit. Daisy started him with formal music training around age seven or eight at Garnet Elementary School. His teacher, believe it or not, was named Mrs. Clink Scales. But at the time, he was more interested in playing baseball, and that's what he did with a lot of his free time. He would sit out at the sandlot with the boys, and they would see President Teddy Roosevelt ride by on horseback sometimes. He would wave at the boys, and they would wave back at him. So he had, within his view, within his lifetime, within his lifestyle, he, he saw what it meant to be at the top. He loved going to baseball games, so he got a job selling peanuts and popcorn at the Washington National Stadium. And it was during that time that he said it was the first time he ever felt stage fright, which he had to soon overcome, a good thing, because he spent basically the rest of his life on stage. He also liked putting on a show for his friends, for his family members, and at that age would dance, tell jokes, and play the jaw harp to entertain people around him. During this time period, Washington, D.C. was the center of American black civilization due to its population size, the socioeconomic structure, and all of the educational and cultural opportunities that were available. It was a leader in education as well, with Howard University established in 1867. In 1900, Washington had the largest black population of any American city and the highest proportion of its population at 31%. Of course, segregation had black members of the community living separately from white communities, and in these neighborhoods, they existed in their own communities. They had their own churches, their own cultural scenes, their own economies. Around 10, he started sneaking into the local burlesque shows, where he made a lot of observations, these are his words, on show business techniques, on the great craftsmanship involved in putting on a show, and on the rather gorgeous girls. He was constantly looking for lessons in all of his experience through life. So everything he saw, everything he did, he took a lesson from and he learned from. Around 14, he started sneaking into a pool room, slightly seedier establishment than even the burlesque. This was a few blocks away from his home. It was next to a popular theater, and so it brought in an eclectic crowd. And he got to mix with waiters, porters, students, pianists, doctors, people from all levels came. And there he learned how to appreciate the value in mixing with a wide range of different people from different levels, from different backgrounds. And notably, while there, he befriended a number of railroad porters who would regale him with stories of traveling to New York, to Detroit, to Chicago, to other cities, whetting his appetite for, for travel. Of course, he soon then started going on the road, and that was where that came from. As a child, he showed talent in several arts, and around that time, he was going from grade school into junior high. His piano lessons took a backseat to visual art. As he moved into high school, he could have gone to M Street High School, the predecessor to Dunbar High, which is an academically-minded school founded in 1870 as the nation's first public high school for blacks. Instead, he went to nearby Armstrong Manual Training School, which was in a kind of rough neighborhood and kind of a rough school to study commercial art. But still, music was around him everywhere. And I should take a moment now to comment on the thought that music at this time in the early 1900s was experienced by people in a very different way. Radios, talkies, TV, all in the future. There were very few recordings. Those that did exist were very low quality because we didn't have electronic microphones at the time. 
So anyone who wanted to hear music had to be able to go and hear it be performed live, either at home or in a church, more likely, or any other number of public spaces, businesses, restaurant, saloons, theaters, where musicians would be employed to entertain the customers. Jazz wasn't yet known. Blues were virtually unheard of outside of the black community, and even within it, shunned by the middle class. Piano sales, however, because of this, were booming. In 1909, piano sales in the U.S. hit an all-time high. Everyone had an upright. Whether you were black, whether you were white, it was a sign of middle-class respectability to have a piano in your home. And so every home then had to have a piano player because that's how you entertained your guests on Sunday. The uprights of the time were fairly large. They weren't the little spinets that we saw become very popular in the mid-century, but large beasts of instruments that filled the room with music. And the Ellington home had two, one in the living room and one in the dining room. Young Edward would practice on both of those. Now, what was just happening on the music scene around him was ragtime, which had come out of Scott Joplin and was being developed by black musicians. And of course, this had, young musicians were flocking to this, whether they were black or white. And like all music that young people like throughout all of time, ragtime had less than savory connotations associated to it at the time. But because it was being played on the piano, which was a legitimate instrument, it was thought to be a little more respectable. Ragtime inspired friendly competition between players and offered musicians challenges in rhythm, in harmony, and in technique. And around 15, Ellington was going out to listen to ragtime pianists in D.C. and when his family would go on vacations in Philadelphia and Atlantic City. And in Asbury Park, he met Harvey Brooks, who showed him some tricks and shortcuts. Duke's words, he was swinging and he had a tremendous left hand. And when I got home, I had a real yearning to play. I hadn't been able to get off the ground before, but after hearing him, I said to myself, man, you're just going to have to do it. This meant learning to play by ear, by listening, by watching, by imitating. It was a period of trial and error. He said, I used to go to rent parties and hear popular pianists play the piano, but they would hit so many keys that I couldn't begin to play the tunes they play, which speaks to a hallmark of his style later on, playing one note at a time in each hand. We hear that in some of the music that we'll hear later tonight. Those ragtime pianists sounded so good to me and they looked so good, particularly when they flashed their left hands. He comments a lot on the left hands of musicians. This was something, of course, the left hand being the bass line of the piano. The piano was well suited to provide music for social dancing. And within the confines of the music they played, the players that were playing it could explore their own musical, physical, physical and visual style. And that was well suited to young Duke Ellington's appreciation for looking your best, sounding your best. And around this time, he wrote his first piece of music. Summer of 1913, he got a job as a soda jerk at the Poodle Dog Cafe on Georgia Avenue. Does anybody know what a soda jerk is? Yes, couple, okay, okay, a lot of people. I had no idea what a soda jerk was. I, when I read this, I had to go and, and look that up. But a soda jerk is a play on soda clerk being the person who stood behind the soda fountain and pulled the handles to mix the soda. And jerk came from the jerking motion that they would make to pull the handles, which were kind of tight because of all the pressure that was involved. So the soda fountain he worked at had a pianist, and the pianist was kind of a drunk. 
And so sometimes the pianist would get a little too drunk to play, or at least not be able, he would get to the point where he couldn't play as well as the teenager behind the counter could. And so the boss would come out, throw the pianist out, step behind the soda fountain, do the soda fountain himself, and put young Duke Ellington on the, on the piano. And of course, then he had to play something. And remember, he'd been learning to play by ear, by imitating, so he didn't really have anything. So he had to make up something to play. And so he said he took fragments from all of these different tunes that he had been hearing people play, and he added to them the rhythm of the soda jerk, and he came up with the soda fountain rag. And he later in life said he could never remember how it went, but then he would also sometimes play it, or at least fragments of it. And I have a very special recording here to play for you first. This is him in 1972, a solo concert at the Whitney Museum in New York, solo piano concert. And he talks a little bit about it, and then he plays a little bit of it. So here we go, the soda fountain rag. I should like very much now to go back and show you uh, probably the first thing I ever played when I found out that nobody couldn't teach me anything. I had to find something of my own. And I came up with this thing called the Soda Fountain Rag. And uh, uh, I can't play it, but I'll show you how to suppose it was started like this. was 69 years old playing a tune that he wrote when he was 15 in that recording. So soon the teenage Ellington composed another tune called What You Gonna Do When the Bed Breaks Down. This was a slow dancing number that was never written down or formally recorded. We don't know what it sounded like, but the lyrics were preserved. Tried it on the sofa, tried it on the chair, tried it on the table, didn't get nowhere. What you gonna do when the bed breaks down? You gotta work out on the floor. Um, teenagers will be teenagers. So this was a hit, of course, with his teenage audiences, and ironically, around this time, his, he had just entered high school, his friend Edgar McContre, noting his polite manners, his fashionable dress, his aristocratic bearing, gave him the nickname Duke, which stuck with him for the rest of his life. McContre also pushed the freshman Duke into playing a number for the seniors' dance. And he became a hit from then on. He was in demand as a pianist, as at dances and parties, noticing that there was always a pretty girl standing down at the bass clef left-hand end of the piano and stating, I ain't been no athlete since. The more he played, the more music he made it. But he knew very few tunes. He took that soda fountain rag and he changed the beat, he changed the tempo. He played it as a one-step, a two-step, a foxtrot, a tango, a waltz. So his listeners thought he had all this repertoire. He had one tune, but he learned how to change one tune and learned all these different styles and play them in different ways, which helped him, of course, later on. That tune, Soda Fountain Rang, sh showed up in other comp compositions in the next few years, including Oklahoma Stomp of 1929 and Swing Session of 37. Reusing older materials is one of the hallmark techniques of this composer, and it's something that he did throughout life. 
Now, in the early 1900s, it was becoming acceptable for nice people to dance in public. By the mid-1910s, social dance was all the rage. New steps were coming out of black communities and surging into middle and upper-class white communities, including ragtimes and the animal steps, which imitated the animals they were named after, like the turkey trot, the grizzly bear, the bunny hop, and the kangaroo hop. To accommodate this, all the cabarets and nightclubs, which were previously disreputable for women to patronize, started popping up in many American cities as evening dancing became something that was a regular form of public entertainment for young people and for married couples. Publishers demanded that all popular songs now be danceable, and at the same time, they needed dance bands. And so, as a teenager, he was bouncing around this musical scene. He was around all these musicians, and he would see older musicians being, became his mentors for everything. Whenever he ran into a challenge, there was always an older musician around to give him advice. One was Doc Perry, a DC band leader who taught him how to read music. Duke called him my piano parent. Perry soon invited Duke to fill in for him at Wednesday afternoon dances, and then Duke started playing for a local musician and filling in in clubs and cafes all over black Washington. He was also at this age an accomplished painter, so he was getting pretty busy, and at 17 he dropped out of high school to take a day job sign painting. And then at night he would go and play music all around town with a number of different bands. And despite that success, he still had a lot to learn. One day, Doc Perry chewed him out for showing up at a British embassy gig wearing a bright plaid suit instead of formal evening wear. And then he was fired from another dance band for embellishing the music too much instead of playing it as written. And I want to take a moment here and note that Duke Ellington, in all of his success, was in his early life surrounded by music, surrounded by musicians, surrounded by musical instruments that he could play, surrounded by mentors to teach him. And without any of that, who knows what he would have been able to come. And I have to draw a line here of parallel between the work, uh, what was going on in that community and the work that the LA Phil does through the Youth Orchestras of Los Angeles program, the YOLA program, which puts musical instruments in the hands of young kids, gives them an opportunity to be around professional musicians, to learn and to be in the same kind of great supportive environment that Duke Ellington and most professional musicians had when they were growing up. So let's support YOLA. Um, through the work that he was doing, he was also learning a lot of new music through all these bands. Scott Chotlin had died in 1917, but already the musicians were beginning to play beyond the written music and into a looser form that was known as jazz or jazz, J-A-S, J-A-S-S, J-A-Z. It had many different spellings at the time. And it's hard to say when ragtime turned into jazz, but around this time, ragtime was an early form of jazz, and jazz was starting to come out. During the middle to late 19-teens in New Orleans, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Washington, musicians were experimenting with this new style, playing new rhythms and bringing them around. And through the next decades, Duke Ellington capitalized on this, touring around uh, from going from a sub in the band to a frontman, leading his own orchestra, bringing that group around DC, around New York, where he soon moved to 1923, and then as a band leader and composer, developing the idea of the jazz suite, large format jazz compositions that, he, uh, that are, are be what we hear today on our concert of the Symphonic Ellington. Um, they played at the Cotton Club, they started touring, he had hits like Mood Indigo, Solitude, which we'll hear on the concert today, Creole Rhapsody, Diminuen Crescendo and Blue. And it was all of these great musicians that were in his band, all these great soloists that made that possible because he would sit at the piano and write them out and then go into a studio and give them to his band and they would play them and they would play them back and forth and the pieces would evolve as a collective project from the band. Um, he started appearing in, in, in recordings. They started 
appearing in films beginning in 1929, and in 1935, a very imaginative, through-composed 10-minute score for the film Symphony in Black, A Rhapsody of Negro Life made them popular. The band toured the U.S. and Europe, capitalizing on all of the fame of those recordings. By the 1940s, all of this road life on all of the uh, drama going on between the band, the musicians, personnel turnover, the union, the recording, the publishers, the broadcasters was all paying a price. And Duke Ellington did what every stressed out, burnt out New Yorker does when they can't take it anymore. He moved to LA. Came to Hollywood, 1941. His orchestra had a long engagement playing the show Jump for Joy, and before touring through too much, uh, they toured through much of 1942 before returning to the West Coast for the end of that year to prepare for a grand return to New York in January 1943, his first Carnegie Hall concert. This was a major milestone, Carnegie Hall, for any musician, but especially for a black musician, and especially for a black musician to be a headliner. It was a major event. Eleanor Roosevelt was there. Frank Sinatra ducked out of his gig at the Paramount Theater down the street, ran over at the break to say hi to Duke Ellington backstage and wish him luck. And placed at the center of that concert was his magnum opus, a sprawling 48-minute, three-part suite, brown, black, brown, and beige, which we hear some of on our concert today. Now, I'll talk for a moment about the problems of the symphonic Ellington. Now, Duke Ellington's band was called the Duke Ellington Orchestra. That's his big band. That's him and his musicians. Then we have the symphony orchestra that he was pairing up with, that we're pairing up. We hear the LA Phil tonight as a symphony orchestra. So all the pieces he was writing, he was writing for his band, but they were also existing in these other, in these other forms. New World to Come in the Piano Concerto was written for his own orchestra, but then six years later, he arranged it for symphonic orchestra. And then sometimes he would play it with just a rhythm section. Sometimes he would play it as a solo piano piece. Um, Night Creature was a piece that was conceived as a concerto grosso for big band and symphony. He performed it sometimes without the band, only the rhythm section and the symphony. This all points to his savviness as a businessman. His music could be adaptable to any situation. If you want to hire Duke Ellington, he will show up and he'll bring as many musicians as you can afford him to pay, and whatever he can't bring, he'll figure out a way to make it work. This then also led to other problems, because when he's working with his band, all the music is handled in-house. They're going into the studio, they're writing things. They played it last night in Pittsburgh and you know, we made some changes and then tomorrow in Philadelphia we're gonna do those changes. But when he's playing with orchestras, the music has to go in advance and sometimes you have to have one set of music in, in Los Angeles and one set of music in New York for the next week. And so the music has to stop changing as much. And this, this, this came to lots of, lots of challenges. And so what we have now when we look back at this music is we have many different versions from which to sort through, and um, uh, when we're performing tonight, you know, we're working with, with arrangements that were made sometimes while with Duke Ellington while he was alive and sometimes afterwards. Sometimes there are pieces that are performed without him, uh, well, obviously now without him, but uh, uh, the orchestra pieces were performed without him. Uh, sometimes they had him, and so there were all these different versions. And while the idea at the time of symphonic jazz was already starting, to become mainstream through people like George Gershwin, James P. Johnson, as well as others who were incorporating in like Stravinsky and Ravel. Ellington's music, he was generally writing for his orchestra and he didn't really pursue this kind of writing in the 1920s while it was 
very much a happening thing. Gershwin, George Antile, Freddy Groffet. But he waited until he was in his 50s. He was 50 years old when he performed his music with the symphony for the first time. And even then, he didn't adapt his music to the orchestra so much as brought in Luther Henderson, a Juilliard-trained, Tony, later Tony-nominated composer and arranger, uh, to work with him to create the versions that he would play on that first Carnegie Hall concert. And that's where we get to brown, black, why do I keep calling it brown? I don't know, black, black, brown, and beige sweet. Last night I was calling it black, beige, and brown sweet, so tomorrow I'll get it right. Black, brown, and beige. So this was a, a massive piece, 45 minutes long. Uh, each of the three parts, black, brown, and beige, was in three separate smaller parts. And what we hear tonight is a version that is much smaller. It's the black, brown, and beige suite that was created by Duke Ellington's request by Maurice Perez, a young conductor and composer in 1970. And rather than take the entire 45-minute piece, he took the first three parts. So the part that in the original performance was the entirety of black, those three parts, are what we hear tonight. And we hear them as black, brown, and beige. Um, there are three parts to it. The first part is uh, a work song featuring a call and response between the different sections of the orchestras. The second is Come Sunday, a worship song that became a jazz standard, but in the original version it was, it was played by, the melody was played by Johnny Hodges, the great saxophonist. And this movement also features violinist Ray Nance. After that, we have a trumpet fanfare that takes us forward into light. And the original ending of light, the third movement tonight, was pretty abrupt because, of course, it wasn't the end of the piece. There was still half an hour of music to go. Perez brought this to Ellington's attention, though, and he told him that he agreed. And Ellington said, well, go ahead and write something. Just finish it. And Perez says, well, I can't do that. You're, you're Duke Ellington. You have to finish it. And Ellington said, okay, well, why don't just use Come Sunday? And so Perez came back to it with a little excerpt to come Sunday at the end, and Duke said, that's great, I love it, do more of it. And so when we get to the end of Black, Brown, and Beige tonight, we've got uh, a large quote from Sun come Sunday that ends the piece. Um, incidentally, the full piece still exists, still has been, be, is performed. There's a great recording of it by Witten Marsalis and Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra that came out maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago now. Um, but that work was not initially received very well by the press. The press didn't know what it was. They didn't know if it was jazz. They didn't know if it was classical music. And that was a challenge. And going back to it, at the end of that piece, Beige, that original performance, Duke sort of ran out of time. And so he farmed out the last movement to Billy Strayhorn. So the last movement of that, Sugar Hill Penthouse, was an earlier tune that Billy Strayhorn had written. And Duke added a couple of little things to it. But it actually has a couple of piano, uh, a couple of piano cadenzas in it, which are notable because that first Carnegie concert was in 1943, January of 1943. His second Carnegie Hall concert was December of 1943. And on that concert, he premiered his work, Piano Concerto, New World to Coming for piano and orchestra. And the argument could be made that New World to Coming, which sort of took some of the themes that he was exploring, uh, or all of the themes that he was exploring in Black, Brown, and Beige, of trying to tell the story of, uh, of black history from the beginning 
uh, from the beginnings in Egypt and Africa all the way to the present day in Harlem and Washington, D.C., looking forward to a new future. And New World to Come and it was actually looking forward to a new future. That was the concept of that piece. So it's easy to see that as the final piece of black, brown, and beige that he never finished, that he always wanted to finish, that coming out with the piano solo. Um, now, when he recorded Black, Brown, and Beige in 1958, he made some pretty big changes to it, um, which point both to the suite we'll hear today, but also the large-scale compositional architectures uh, turning towards the religious as a precursor to the concerts we'll talk about soon. Now, in the recording, Black, Brown, and Beige, he omitted all of the middle section, Brown, and replaced Beige with a setting of the 23rd Psalm. And further... He added a vocal soloist to Come Sunday instead of John Hodge, Johnny Hodges. Um, heard here for the first time with lyrics sung by the great Mahalia Jackson, who later won a Grammy for the work, and then this, of course, became a jazz standard. Today, after we hear the suite, we've got a gem of a work, Solitude, which is a piece that Duke Ellington wrote reportedly, according to him, in 20 minutes. As he went to the studio with his band in 1934, and they got there and found out they needed more music to fill out the album. In the meantime, the band before them was going into overtime. So he stood out in the hallway and he sketched out Solitude. They recorded it that day. They recorded it a second time later that year. And that second recording made it up to number two on the charts. That piece would be recorded 28 times over the next eight years. And became a staple tune of Billie Holiday, who herself recorded it a number of times. And helped to make it the jazz standard that it now is. The version that we're going to hear today was created in 1946 by the Pulitzer Prize-winning American composer Morton Gold, which he recorded with his own orchestra. It's scored for strings with harp and celeste. It's just the most gorgeous, gorgeous sounds to hear the string orchestra, but also the harp and the celeste moving around with it. Now, in the, 19 early, in the 60s going into the 70s, a number of events took place which spurned transformations of religious thought and practice, including the Second Vatican Council, and the Civil Rights Movement, and the Vietnam War. During this period, a number of composers made sacred offerings. Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, Olivier Messiaen's Et Expecto Resurrectionum Mortuorum, Jean Coltrane's Love Supreme, Stravinsky's Requiem Canicles, Mary Lou Williams' Mass for Peace and Leonard Bernstein's Mass, all composed during that time. These and other similar works vary widely in their statement and in their tone. They're intense, they're disquieting, they're pious, they're questioning, they're epic, they're modest, they're ritualistic, and they're theatrical. Religion was always with Duke Ellington. He wore a gold cross around his neck at all times and traveled with a Bible, as well as a much-noted copy of Forward Day by Day, a spiritual guide published by the Episcopal Church. Beginning in the late 50s, gospel music began moving beyond church and became more of a mainstay in wider cultural movements of the day, notably jazz. With the formation of Dr. Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957, religious leaders spearheaded the movement and musicians of other artists followed. Prior to the recording of Black, Brown, and Beige, gospel singer Mahela Jackson started appearing at the Newport Jazz Festival. Charles Mingus had a hit in Saturday Night Prayer Meeting. Ray Charles brought gospel singing into pop music, and Langston Hughes brought, brought it to Broadway with the hit show Black Nativity. Duke Ellington in this, in this universe conceived and presented three concerts of sacred music, 1965, 68, and 73. 
And these concerts were continually evolving works in progress. Not even the individual concerts were treated as, pardon the pun, yes, I planned that, sacred. In subsequent performances, the content and order of the different numbers would change. Only the second concert consisted of entirely new material. Mary Lou Williams was creating jazz masses, but Ellington's concerts, as he said many times, were not masses. Masses follow specific formal settings of liturgical verses, and the concerts were also not jazz, per se. He said that he didn't want the word jazz to appear in any programs or any publicity around the concerts. They were concerts, not services. And the only liturgical text that he set was the Lord's Prayer, though all these concerts took place in sacred spaces. So the selections we hear today include numbers taken from each of the three concerts. When Grace Cathedral in San Francisco opened, they planned a festival of grace, a year-long festival, with a variety of cultural works and speakers taking part. Under those auspices, Ellington's first sacred concert was presented in September 1965. That concert was repeated over 50 times worldwide. It was recorded originally by KQED, and the concert was later released on CD and DVD. Although the album that Ellington made was recorded from reprises of that concert that happened in New York later that year. The concert mixed old and new material with Come Sunday and his piano concerto New World to Come and included. Three other works which we hear today come from that concert. David Dance, Before the Lord with All His Might, tells the story of David's succession as the second king of Israel, and it featured tap dancer Bunny Briggs in the title role. Duke and Bunny had gotten to know each other during the 50s when Bunny was a regular guest on the Ed Sullivan Show. And when he was approached to take part, Buddy almost didn't perform because of his devout Catholicism. And he believed that performing that music in a church was sacrilegious, but Duke turned him into it. And at that performance, described him as the most super leviathonic, rhythmaturgically syncopated tapster magicianismist. This work is going to be danced today and choreographed today by Chloe Arnold, who is spectacular. Following the intermission, opening the second half, Ain't But The One, a call and response celebratory overture opening the second half, featuring a soloist asking who could do any of these wondrous things but the Lord, backed by a gospel chorus in the original. In today's arrangement, we feature two small groups of singers calling back and forth while the orchestra and instrumentalists offer interjections. His second sacred concert premiered at the Cathedral of St. John at Divine in New York in January 1968 and was recorded later that week in the studio for a double-issue LP. This was a creative homecoming of sorts as the cathedral sits just on the edge of Harlem in Upper Manhattan. The multiple repeated performances of the first sacred concerts must have emboldened him, and so in the program notes for the second concert, he described himself as a messenger boy, one who tries to bring messages to people, not really those who have never heard of God, but those who were more or less raised with the guidance of the church. He called this concert the most important thing I have ever done, and he presented a concert of all new material, not a patchwork of old and new like the first concert. The concert featured different styles, including music in a much more secular style, and moving beyond his usual big band spectrum in an apparent effort to be more inclusive of different Christian faiths. It also seemed to bend a bit towards an audience of children. He gave an important role to children's choirs in the concert and even included a spoken episode where a young boy told the story of Adam and Eve's fall from grace from the perspective of the apple. This was the first time he worked with the Swedish singer Alice Babs, who was soloist in Heaven, the most remembered and enduring tune from this concert, 
We hear it tonight. It opens with a recitative-like statement by the piano and singer, stating an angular melody full of dissonant leaps before it's moved into a slow-groove saxophone ballad. Then the singer comes back with the opening material in a coolly triumphant bossa nova section, culminating in an angular melismatic solo section for the singer, followed by a finale. Something about Believe in the next number, and originally opened with Ellington playing electronic piano, which was a rarity, but it sort of signified a sense of modern coolness, which is appropriate because that work is essentially a pop tune for the chorus. Now, the third concert took place in 1973, and this was built around Alice Babs, Cootie Williams as well, and of course Duke Ellington. It was first performed at Westminster Abbey in London. And at this point in his life, Duke Ellington was feeling surrounded by death and illness. Johnny Hodges, great saxophone collaborator, had died in 1970. And his own Duke's personal physician and closest friend, Dr. Arthur Logan, died just a few months after the premiere of the concert. Ellington himself was already sick with lung cancer, though he didn't make that known. He knew the end was near, and so the tone of the concert's music is less exuberant and less eclectic than the second, and replaced with a sort of solemnity, and as Tull Steed called it, moving from preachment towards prayer. My Love, a new song which was written for Alice Babb, sounds like a mantra with the same phrases repeated over and over. Ain't nobody nowhere nothing without God is a bit of down-home gospel. And then today's finale, The Majesty of God, is a benediction, Broadway-style curtain call number, which closed out the third sacred concert and closes out our concert today. The third concert was repeated only once in Barcelona as he died exactly six months later to the day of its premiere. Later that summer, in May 1974, his funeral was held at St. John the Divine, the site of the second concert's premiere, overlooking his adopted home of Harlem. I have many thanks due for this, notably to the eminent composer, scholar, and teacher David Schiff, whose book, The Ellington Century, was an invaluable resource in preparing this lecture. Um, I recommend it to anybody. It's fabulous and insightful, deep, insights into Duke Ellington's music. And I also like to thank the LA Phil for having me and thank all of you for being here. So thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Thank you.